Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of the Gist of Freedom Block Talk Radio Show. Today, we are going to be capping off a couple of points that we brought to you in our last broadcast about Michael Brown. Uh, of course, all of you guys are aware of what's been going on there in Ferguson, Missouri, with the uh, young teenager who was killed by a, uh, the police department there, Darren Wilson. So now we're going to be giving you the perspective from an attorney, uh, Michael Cord from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania who is going to shed light on some of the legal aspects in this particular case uh, and some of the other things that people can do if they don't want to go sort of the alternative route, uh, the traditional route, rather, that some people have taken with respect to their advocacy. Uh, Michael Kors, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, I normally don't start off by talking about the background of a guest that is on the program, but in this particular case, I'm going to make an exception because uh, when it comes to legal issues, you really do have an exemplary record, and so if you can just take a couple of minutes to give uh, the listening audience a little bit about your background and some of the legal um, uh, accomplishments that you've been able to achieve. Well, I certainly appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Let me start out by saying this. Um, When I speak to folks as an attorney, I always make it clear that I am not a lawyer who happens to be a black man. Instead, I'm a black man who just happens to be a lawyer. And for me, there's a big difference. However, it's important to kind of throw out some of your legal credentials when you talk about legal issues like these. Um, I've been practicing for over 20 years. Um, One of the things that I really appreciate about some of the work I've been able to do is not so much what I personally have been able to do, but what I've been successful in in terms of empowering the community. In Pennsylvania, and I would venture to say in about 25, 26 other states, there's something called a private criminal complaint procedure. And this private criminal complaint procedure we've been able to use in Pennsylvania, specifically in Philadelphia, and it's a procedure whereby citizens who are brutalized by the police, they can file criminal complaints in a way that allows them to bypass the police 
and even bypass the district attorney's office and go right into a courtroom and basically act as your own private prosecutor to get cops locked up. Um, there was a big case in Philadelphia back in 1998 with an unarmed black man. I mean, he just goes on all the time everywhere, but here, an unarmed black man shot and killed by a police officer, and the district attorney's office here in Philadelphia didn't do what she was supposed to do. So I and another attorney looked at this local rule called the private criminal complaint, and it allowed us to bypass the police, bypass district attorney's office, and go right into court. And I'll never forget because I have it framed, this court order framed in my office, April 6, year 2000. We actually got a judge to order the prosecution of a white police officer for the murder of a black person. Now, that's the first time in Philadelphia history, first time in Pennsylvania history, and one of the first times in American history that an on-duty white police officer was charged not with manslaughter but with murder. So one of the things I like to talk about is not so much what I've been able to do, but I always tell people in Pennsylvania to look up Rule 506 of the Pennsylvania Rules of Criminal Procedure, and you can empower yourself by actually getting cops prosecuted. And when I talk to folks in other states, I say, look, just tell me what state you're from, give me 24 hours, and I'll do the research. I'll let you know what laws exist in your state. So, again, I've been practicing for over 20 years. I do a criminal defense, primarily capital cases, involving the shooting deaths of police officers because I personally oppose the death penalty. So I've been doing this stuff for a long time, but for me, it's not so much what I do as an attorney. It's not so much what other attorneys do as lawyers. It's what we do to empower the people because it's the people that who are often victimized, and I try to give them the weapons they need to fight back. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Michael Brown case and some of the other legal issues in just a second. But uh, something struck me as you were talking about the prosecution of police officers. Uh, in your work of some 20 years or so, have you thought, uh, for a second, that there has to be a way or things that need to be in place to stop the murders that are happening rather than the prosecutions? Um, absolutely, yes. I mean, it's all about being proactive. So, And I'm so glad you raised the issue. On the back end, it's a wonderful thing if we can get these cops arrested and prosecuted and convicted and sentenced to jail. That would be a wonderful thing, but Michael Brown is still dead. Sean Bell is still dead. Amadou Diallo is still dead. Oscar Grant is still dead, even if those cops spend the rest of their life in prison. So on the back end, yeah, we want to do that kind of thing, but I'm so glad you raised the issue of what can we do on the front end to be proactive to even stop the murders. Well, the answer is very simple. There has to be a better screening out or weeding out process at the police academy. You don't just come to the police academy and say, hey, I have no criminal record. Give me a badge and a gun and a license to kill, because that's exactly what they do. If you have no high school graduate, you have no criminal record, they give you a badge and a gun and a license to kill. But it's got to be more than that. There has to be some psychological evaluation. We want to find out what kind of person you are. And there was an informal study done years ago, and they found out that for many cops, if not most, Many cops were bullied in high school. 
bullied in high school. So now, because they couldn't do anything when they were 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, now they can get back at people and they can be the bully. Well, when these people, anybody who applies for a job as a police officer, male, female, white, black, we want to go into their high school records, we want to talk to their neighbors, we want to talk to their family, we want to talk to their former employers, friends, and do a real psychological screening and put them on a probation. So one, it should be a, a more thorough screening process to try to latch on to at least find out about some holes, some psychological holes that might make these people a walking, ticking time bomb. That's the first thing. And then once they get through the first screening process, now we put them on an extended probation where now you have to, I mean, we'll give you a badge and a gun, but you can never be on duty by yourself for, say, maybe the first year or the first two years. You've got to have a more veteran officer with you, and you have to be always about de-escalating situations rather than escalating situations. So if there's a guy out on the street drunk, a guy out on the street with a knife, I mean, clearly you don't want to be dealing with a, a belligerent drunk guy. You certainly want to be dealing with somebody with a knife. But how can you talk that belligerent guy down? How can you get that weapon away from that person? And, I mean, a gun and a knife are not equal weapons. So if I'm a cop and there's a guy on the street with a knife, I mean, as long as he doesn't get within five feet from me, there's so many things I can do to repel him. Um, so one, and I'm so glad you raised this issue because it's an important issue, even though we need to penalize these cops and arrest these cops and jail these cops, that's after these black boys have been murdered. What can we do to stop it? So clearly a more thorough screening process, and once they get through that, certainly some type of extended probation with veteran officers who have clean records. The other thing we need to do is to make it much more difficult for cops to keep their jobs after they do something wrong. The system now is designed to protect bad cops. We need to reverse that. For example, here in Philadelphia, they have this arbitration system that the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union in Philly, worked out with the city government such that based on this union, this labor agreement, it's damn near impossible to fire a cop even after he's committed some brutality. There was a horrible case here in Philadelphia a couple years ago where this big strapping police officer punched this small Latina woman in the face, knocked her down, knocked her out, bloodied her face, but he kept his job. Now, how do I know that this big cop beat this small woman? Because I'm looking at it on the videotape. The judge sees it. Despite all that, this cop keeps his job. So to answer your question, yeah, we need to do the back-end stuff and prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law, but there's got to be a better screening-out process, a weeding-out process, a monitoring process, a probationary period, but all that comes down to the public because what the cops do now, they do legally. They do based on laws. They do based on what judges and juries do, they do what they do based on agreements with city government. It takes people to vote, to register to vote, and become active because just marching and protesting and demonstrating, that's not good enough. Okay. What do you think of the military, uh, militarizing the police? I'm sorry, what did you say? Uh, demilitarizing the police. That's a great question. That should stop 
today, yesterday, last week, last month, the idea that you can have a local police force that looks like they're ready to invade Russia is absolutely frightening. There was never, ever any reason to give these cops this type of military armaments that would allow them to look like a standing army. But again, that all comes down to the public. President Barack Obama said the other day after he saw a video of what's taking place and what has taken place in Ferguson, he said that we have to rethink our position of militarizing the police department. And that's so true. But again, it's the people that have to demand that. And that's where voting and fighting politically comes in. But there was one graphic picture, and it's making the rounds on uh, Facebook, where there's a young black man, probably a teenager, has a backpack on, he has his hands up, must be about 15 or 20 cops, I mean, armed to the teeth coming toward him. It's something wrong with that picture. We've got to get the military out of the police force. It was never designed to be that way, but unfortunately, after 9-11, everybody feels like they need a standing army, no matter how small their little town might be. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move towards the Michael Brown case. Uh, what was your initial reaction after you heard the news of what happened there? And I hate to ask this, but were you surprised that it happened? You know, you just took the words out of my mouth. Sadly, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I heard a news clip, I believe this happened back on August 9th, so maybe the day after or a couple days after, whenever it hit the news, I heard, hey, a black kid down south was uh, shot and killed by a police officer. Ho-hum. And I don't mean ho-hum to minimize the death of a black person. Quite the contrary. I'm simply saying what else is new. So I wasn't surprised about the killing because that happens so often. There was a study done recently that indicated that um, a number on average, a certain number of black men, unarmed black men, are killed each year by police officers. And I always pose this question. Just think if it were reverse. What if black police officers were killing unarmed white boys at the rate that white police officers are killing unarmed black boys? This thing would have stopped immediately. So sadly, And tragically, I wasn't surprised about the killing. But I got to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised, shocked even, that the people in Ferguson rose up the way that they did. I know that people are kind of lashing out at some of the folks who kind of went crazy and instead of engaging in what I call a progressive insurrection, some people engaged in, in, in violence. They engaged in rioting. But I hesitate to use the term violence. I hesitate to use the term rioting because all the stuff that these people did, it was a reaction to what's going on. And I hate it when people talk about so-called rioting and so-called violence. And I really hate this whole notion of black-on-black crime. I'll talk about that in a second because that confuses the issues. What we're talking about is white police officers killing unarmed black boys with impunity. And people say, well, yeah, Mike, that goes on, but it might be five or ten unarmed black kids a year who are killed by cops. But look at what goes on with so-called black-on-black crime. And I say, stop it. Just stop it. Because the people who say that, and I'm embarrassed to admit, far too many black people talk about the so-called black-on-black crime. I say, did you know that... 84% of the white murder victims are murdered by white people. 
And they're like, wow, 84% of the white murder victims are murdered by other white people. If that's not white-on-white crime, nothing is. What about Columbine? What about the schools? What about the movie theaters? What about when these white folks just go crazy and become snipers and mow people down? Nobody talks about that as white-on-white crime, but when black youth do it, they talk about that. So from my standpoint, um, I was... I was not surprised about the murder by a white cop of a black youth, but I was pleasantly surprised about the reaction of black people standing up and rebelling against it. Could the rebelling, could the uh, response have been more orchestrated, more constructive, more focused? Yeah, but people just don't move like that. People tend to react emotionally in the moment, and I don't blame them for that. And one quick point I do want to mention to folks, because we're talking about uh, Ferguson, people need to understand the whole history of Ferguson and of St. Louis. And a few reporters and journalists in the major media kind of got wind of it and touched on it. But when you look at how Michael Brown was brutally murdered and left out there on the street for several hours. The first thing I thought about is, wow, they they really have no respect for black life. And then after I began to do some research and read some articles, I'm like, hey, the whole notion of respect comes from the Dred Scott decision from 1857 when the U.S. Supreme Court through Chief Justice Roger Taney said that the black man has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. You might say, okay, Mike, I hear that, but what does that have to do with Ferguson? What does that have to do with Missouri? Well, when Dred Scott filed his lawsuit, he filed it just a few miles away from Ferguson in St. Louis. So the genesis of the Dred Scott decision happened just a few miles away. And to this day, the body of Dred Scott is a mere four miles outside of Ferguson. So the specter of the Dred Scott decision is alive and well right there in Ferguson, Missouri, right there throughout St. Louis. And the other quick point I did want to make about um, Ferguson is that, to me, it's, it's surprising that this type of uproar and outrage didn't happen sooner. I mean, look at a place that is about 70% black with 20,000 residents, 70% black with 20,000 residents. Of that, they got about 53 police officers and only three of the 53 are black. It's something wrong with that. No blacks on the school board. It's something wrong with that. So this Michael Brown situation is just a microcosm of the bigger picture of not only Ferguson, Missouri, and St. Louis, but of America, and something has to be done. And when I talk to radio show hosts like you and others, I try to make it clear that it's important to lay out the problems as we're talking about them, but we also need to, at the conclusion of laying out the problems, talk about the solutions. And going on to problems, and and I'll hear your follow-up questions, um, I want to get into not just um, Ferguson, Missouri, as I mentioned, St. Louis, but uh, nearby Jennings. I mean, that whole region is just rife with um, outrageous police misconduct. And let me not just blame the South. Let me not just blame uh, Missouri. Let's talk about Philadelphia, for example. People would be shocked, absolutely shocked to find out that the city that was the first city in the United States of America to be prosecuted by the federal government for police brutality was not in the South. 
It was right here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, under notoriously brutal uh, police commissioner Frank Rizzo in 1979, was prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice for police brutality. That's up north. That's Philadelphia. So it's not just the southern thing or west coast thing. It's all across America, and something has to be done. And that's why I'm so glad that you raised the question of what do we do on the front end to stop the murders. I mean, it's important to punish the cops who kill, but what can we do on the front end to save black life? And I know I said I was making my last point 10 minutes ago, but let me just add one other thing in terms of this black-on-black <laughs> crime issue. When, and I say this what I'm about to say now just to enlighten black folks because I got to admit, as a black man born and raised in Philadelphia in the poor section of town, North Philly, I saw a lot of quote-unquote black-on-black crime. And it, People say, well, Mike, if there's a lot of black-on-black crime, and I hate the term because of how I explained it to you earlier, there's just as much white-on-white crime. By the way, it's really no such thing as black-on-black or brown-on-brown or white-on-white if you think about it because people commit crimes. They don't commit crimes against other people because they're of a certain race. For the most part, they don't. They do it to their neighbors. So it's neighbor-on-neighbor crime. Crime is a... Crime usually are actions of opportunity. You grab that woman's purse because she's right down the street from you. You rob this guy or burglarize his house because he lives around the corner. So people tend to commit crimes against people who live in their neighborhood. Whites live with whites, blacks live with blacks, and so on. But getting back to my point about the whole um, black-on-black thing, um, which to me I think is a critical issue that folks need to be aware of, um, when it comes down to black people committing crimes against black people. The reason why I don't raise as much hell about so-called black-on-black crime as I do with white police officer crime against black people is this. When Jamal or Tyrone or Little Man from the projects, when he kills another black man in the hood, the awesome weight of the criminal justice system comes down on his head. And Raheem and Tyrone and Man Man, they get arrested, they get prosecuted, they get convicted, they get sentenced to prison, and many of them get the death penalty. So the system goes after black criminals. But when police officers, white police officers, kill black people, the awesome weight of the system doesn't come down on them. Quite the contrary. While we go to jail and get the death penalty, white cops get paid vacations and get promotions. So there's no need for me to yell about so-called black-on-black crime because the system takes care of that through harsh punishment. That's why I got to yell about white police crime against black people because the system doesn't go after them. And I promise that was my last comment before I hear your follow-up. No, I, I I was listening because it's very intriguing. I've learned very early on. You never stop a guy who's on a roll if he's making sense. As long as you're making sense and it's interesting, yeah. I will continue to let you you speak. Um, I but it. I I want to say this to you because I know that you are no stranger to grabbing headlines when it comes to op-ed pieces. And I wonder if you maybe not now, but maybe towards the end of the conversation, could come up with the headline that would be the uh, starting point for your next op-ed article about what's happening, whether it's in Ferguson or around the country, um, and, and take this for a suggestion. Uh, unless white people die, 
um, change will not occur. And that that's exactly right. I mean, you put it in a much more succinct way than I did earlier because I posed the question, if black cops were killing unarmed white boys at the rate that white cops are killing unarmed black boys, then this thing would have stopped immediately. There was just something on YouTube just recently and also on Facebook where a white kid shot a cop. The white, it wasn't a real gun. It was a BB gun. But the white kid shot the cop with a BB gun, and what did the cop do? He wrestled the kid down to the ground and took the BB gun away from him. Can you imagine that? There's also something on YouTube where a white guy in an open carry state, it might have even been in Texas, he got this military assault weapon, and he's walking around as if he's junk. He's calling at the police officers. He's calling the cops. He's grabbing his crotch. And the cops kind of surrounded him, two or three police cars around him. One of the officers gets out and starts to engage the man in conversation, then walks over to the man, and they now sit down on the curb talking. And eventually, after the cops did take the guy's gun and took him to the police station, they released him with no charges and gave him his gun back. That wouldn't happen to a black person. So you're absolutely right. It's not until black life is treated as valuable and as sacred as white life that something's going to change. And how does that happen? It happens with people, yeah, we got to protest, we got to demonstrate, we got to march, we got to rally, but we got to do even more than that. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not at the point of black men carrying guns to protect themselves against white cops. Emotionally, I feel that and say that sometimes, but there's two problems with that. Um, the first problem is the key problem to me, and that is for every gun that a black group might have to repel white police officers, the cops got a million. So it would almost be a suicide mission for black men to go out and do something like that. And the other issue is, you know, we remember that movie with Clint Eastwood from years ago where he says, make my day. If they're killing unarmed black kids without any type of, repercussions from the system, can you imagine what they would do if black men were armed? They would come up with these crazy excuses. But I've got to tell you, I'm really, I'm getting close to that because not because it's the best solution I can see that black men, the, the, the Black Panther Party in the 70s had something called a police patrol. And when they got, they used to carry these uh, radios, these uh, two-way radios where they can kind of intercept calls from the police dispatch. And they would hear, for example, uh, police officers on the scene at a certain location, certain time. The Panthers would run to that site with two things. One, with the law book, and two, with the gun. Whoever has the gun, that was in California before the Mulford Act was passed. The Mulford Act basically outlawed people carrying guns out in the open. Before that law passed in 1967, you could carry a gun openly. Well, the Panthers would run to that scene, one guy with a law book, another guy with a gun, and at a reasonable distance read aloud to the cop what he was doing and why it was illegal, and if push came to shove, there would be a shootout. So, I mean, in my heart, I like that. In my heart, I love that. But in my head, I realize there's some problems with that. Mm -hmm. So then on that radical note, and let's stay there, I really do like it, uh, what can people do using the legal system to shut these instances down? 
get any more do anything the first answer without putting ourselves in jeopardy. And I got to admit, I haven't taken that armed resistance thing off the table. It might be on the back burner, but it's not completely off the table. So it's something to consider. But as Malcolm made it clear, it has to be lawful, it has to be legal, it has to be a clear case of self-defense. Malcolm pointed out that I'm not encouraging anybody to run out and shoot cops. That's just the wrong thing to do. But at a certain point, you've got to protect yourself and your family. You've got to figure out what's the best way to do that. Um, but apart from that, and again, that, that is still on the table. It's, it's actually on the back burner. What else can we do? Well, the best answer, and I'm really glad you're asking me all the right questions, the best answer is to expose the cops. I remember reading books about the Vietnam War, and one of the things that was able to end the Vietnam War is these white radicals and hippies would constantly yell, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching, and people begin to see stuff that the cops were doing to beat them down when they were protesting the war, and then there were news reports coming from Vietnam, and they were showing that all over the place. And now people are seeing for the first time, wow, cops on TV beating these protesters. Wow, our military is over in a foreign country killing yellow people. There's something wrong with that. So if you can shine the light on corruption and brutality, it's almost like going into a dirty kitchen where the kitchen looks good when the light is off. But as soon as you turn that light on, the roaches are running everywhere. What's the light today? The light is your cell phone. The light is your, your recording equipment that's a part of every smartphone. And I'm encouraging every young black man who's listening to me, first and foremost every young black man, but every black person listening to me. I'm a member of a group called the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. It's a group of lawyers who are concerned with protecting the constitutional rights of every American. And the ACLU chapter in New Jersey has this great app, and I encourage everybody to download this app. This is an app that you download on your phone. It allows you to audio tape every encounter with police and videotape every encounter with police. And the great thing about this is even if the police take your phone from you and destroy it, it's already gone to the hard drive of the ACLU office in New Jersey, so they got the audio tape that can't be destroyed. They got the videotape that can't be destroyed. So the answer to your question is you've got to expose the cops, and these camera phones are the best way. The app, the app is at aclu-nj.org forward slash know your, right, your rights. Let me repeat that. It's aclu-nj.org forward slash your rights. And that app at aclu-nj.org forward slash your rights, not only does it have that app that allows you to audio tape and videotape, there's a one-page informational sheet that tells you what your rights are when you encounter the cops while driving, when you encounter the cops while walking, when you encounter the cops at home. It's a great app, and I encourage everybody to do that. So to answer your question, the way we deal with this is by exposing them, and we expose them by recording them, and everybody has a smartphone so everybody can record them. That's the first thing. Now, what do you do after recording them? Well, that's not the end-all and be-all. We know that from the Rodney King verdict. You got a real a videographer with a real camcorder taking a full-length video of the brutal beating of Rodney King, 
But still, the cops walk away not guilty. But at least that's a step in the right direction. And after you get this at, you know, I always tell people, and it's really interesting because in my line of work, I'm often working with activists and revolutionaries and rebels. And many of them are so frustrated with the corruption of the political system that they encourage people to opt out, not to vote. That's the worst thing you could do. I, when I tell people they should vote, I'm not saying vote for a Democrat. I'm not saying vote for Republican. You can vote for the Green Party, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party. You can vote for anybody, but the advantage of voting is not just having political power to determine who's going to be the judge, who's going to be the prosecutor, who's going to be the police commissioner, who's going to be the mayor. But in addition to that, the advantage to voting is in order to get on a jury, there's two ways that the system selects potential jurors. One is through the motor vehicle records. And what's the other? The other is through the voting records. So you increase your chances of being a juror by registering to vote. And now if you're on that Rodney King jury or that Sean Bell jury or that Oscar Grant jury or that Amadou Diallo jury, now you can make sure that you hold out until justice is done. So the first thing, expose the system by recording everything it does, and two, using your political power to flex your political muscle. And once we do that, we begin to make a change. Now, the other thing I wanted to say very quickly, and I want to be clear, I hate it when our civil rights leaders kind of, they, they blame the victim. They say, well, you know, these cops wouldn't be doing what they do to us if we weren't wearing these saggy jeans and if we weren't blasting hip-hop music and if we weren't doing this and weren't doing that. That's the worst thing you could say because that reminds me of telling a woman, well, the only reason you got raped is because you were wearing a tight miniskirt and high heels. Well, no, you don't blame the rape victim for what she was wearing you blame the rapist for raping her. I don't care what she had on. You don't blame the black kid who had the sagging jeans and the scarf around his head for being shot. You blame the cop who shot him. But even with all that, even with all that that I said, there's certain things that we as black men and certainly young black men need to do to stay out of harm's way. I am not a father. So I can't really tell a black father how he should raise his son. But I can say that if you want to increase the chances of your son coming home tonight, you might advise him to do this or do that. Right now, me, Michael Cord, as a black man, as a lawyer who has no children, my whole thing is that do whatever you want. As long as it's legal, you can wear the pants you want, you can listen to the music, you can do all of that. That's true. And I said it as a black man, but if I were a father, I'd probably say, hey, son, you might want to turn that music down. Hey, son, you might not want to wear those pants sagging like that. It's unfortunate because only black fathers and black mothers have to say that to their children. White parents don't have to say that. It's something wrong. This is 2014. We don't need to bow and scrape to white people and white law enforcement anymore. But if I were a father... I might be saying something different. Trayvon Martin's situation, you know, really comes to mind. As a black man, I say Trayvon did everything the right way. He basically told the white guy, mind your business, I'm not committing any crime. But if that was my son and I could go back, I might say, hey, son, you know, put your tail between your legs and get the hell out of there. But this, again, is 2014. We shouldn't have to bow and scrape anymore.
Yeah, that was a very important point. Um, I want to piggyback off of what you talked about in the beginning of this segment, which was the ACLU, and talk about another organization, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. Yes, and I'm glad you give me the opportunity, but one thing I do want to say before I get into Avenging the Ancestors, because that's an important group that's doing important work fully, in fully and nationwide. Um, I'm really pleased that so many quote-unquote black leaders and black organizations are out there in purpose and trying to offer support. But the first thing we always have to do is find out who already is out there in Ferguson who lives there and been doing the work for years, for decades. There's a group called the Organization for Black Struggle, and folks can just Google that name, Organization for Black Struggle. They've been around for about 25 years, and they've been on the ground every day fighting to defend the rights of black people. It's an activist organization, a progressive organization, an African-centered organization. It's called the Organization for Black Struggle. Google them, and you'll see the best group in Ferguson that's not only doing the good work, but has been doing the good work. And by the way, their number is 317-367-5959 at 314 314- Four three six seven five nine five nine, and I'm glad you asked me about my organization here in Philadelphia. It's called ATTAC, A-T-A-C, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition, and it's a very long story, but I can cut to the chase by saying this. Back in 2002, the federal government realized that the Liberty Bell, which has always been in Philadelphia, that the Liberty Bell at its place at Fifth and Market in Philadelphia was becoming congested. They needed to move it to a larger space. We decided to move it a half block west to Sixth and Market. And we in the black community said, okay, you can move the Liberty Bell. We don't really care about that. That's the first thing we found out in 2002. The second thing we found out is that that new site of the Liberty Bell, which is now at Sixth and Market, is where America's first White House stood. Many people thought that the first White House was in D.C. It was not. They thought it was in New York. It was not. It was right here in Philadelphia. It was called the president's house or the executive mansion, but it served in 1790 as America's first White House. It was like, okay, in the black community, that's interesting, but not really relevant to us. But the third thing we found out again in 2002 is that that move of the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia from Fifth and Market to Sixth and Market to the site of America's first White House, to our shock and amazement, is where George Washington, President George Washington, held black folks in brutal bondage as slaves. Many of us knew that he had 316 at his Mount Vernon, Virginia plantation in the South, but we didn't know that he held illegally right here in Philadelphia enslaved black men, women, and children. And that got attacks attention beginning in 2002. And we call ourselves attack avenging the ancestors coalition, coalition first. We're basically a group of many groups. We're an umbrella organization. So any organization that's about advancing the cause of black people, you become a member of our coalition. We call it avenging the ancestors because we do that. We avenge our ancestors. We make sure that we do for them today that they couldn't do yesterday as enslaved human beings. We tell their story. We make it clear. When we say avenge, we mean avenge, not revenge. Many people confuse that. Revenge simply means doing to somebody what they did to you. That's not what we're about. Avenge comes down to this, whereas revenge talks about getting the victimizer back Avenge is all about helping the victim. So we help the victim by making sure that we tell the story. And I just got to add this very quickly. 
it's important that black people always talk about slavery and always remember slavery, but we've got to make sure we don't highlight that. And the reason why I say that is because there's really no other ethnic group that highlights its losses and ignores its victory. When you look at the clock of human existence, humans have been on this planet for 200,000 years, and the first human, you guessed it, from Africa, the Nile Valley region of East Africa, 200,000 years ago. So if you look at that and say, okay, slavery existed in America for 246 years, from 1619 until the pass of the 13th Amendment in 1865, it's 246 years. 246 years out of the clock of 200,000 years is about 10 minutes out of that clock. Just 10 minutes out of that 200,000-year clock. What does that mean? That means we ought to talk about the fact that we were the first human beings on the planet. We created algebra and chemistry and calculus and geometry and science and math and music. Let's talk about that. But we also need to talk about slavery, as my attack organization does, because not because it's important to highlight our losses, because slavery certainly was a loss, but the thing about slavery that's important is this. It explains our plight today. Why are black people at the bottom of every category, education, home ownership, income, health care? We're at the bottom of everything. Why? Because today's plight is a direct result of yesterday's problem. And that problem not only was slavery, but Jim Crow, de facto segregation, de jure segregation, all those things that affected us. But getting back again to your point, this attack organization, we make sure that not only do we tell the story about the struggle of our enslaved ancestors here in Philadelphia, throughout Pennsylvania, but now we're expanding our horizons, not only geographically, by bringing in people from New York and from Chicago, in Detroit. In fact, we just recruited a brother from the motherland, from Liberia, who came to our meeting just last week to talk about the Ebola virus and how we in America can extend our arms to our brothers and sisters in Africa. So now we're becoming not just regional or national, but international. And we encourage folks to find out more about attack, not just in terms of the whole slavery stuff, but we also deal with and I'm going to be clear here, and I understand I'm not going to use profanity, but we can have a committee called F the Police. And F the Police does not stand for what people might think it stands for. It stands for Film the Police. And it's part of that app I just laid out. We educate people about how to legally record police misconduct. We also make sure that with putting pressure on the Philadelphia School District to use something called the Afrocentric infusion. That means because of all the great arts and sciences and math came out of Africa, that when the school district teaches reading, and writing and arithmetic, that they explain that all that stuff came out of Africa. Don't just limit black achievements to Black History Month and the great Dr. King and the great Rosa Parks. All great people and Black History Month are wonderful things, but black people are bigger than civil rights. They're bigger than slavery. We were the first human beings on the planet. So we deal with all those issues, slavery and police brutality and African-centered education. And the other thing we're working on now, we found out that right here in Philadelphia, there are 5,000 black men, women, and children from the 1800s buried under a trash dump 
and a city playground in Philadelphia. How could that be? This is 2014. How could we still have 5,000 black folks from the 1800s buried under a trash dump in Philly and nobody does anything? Well, somebody is doing anything, and that's attack. So any issue affecting black folks, attack is working on, and folks can get more information about attack by going to our website at avengingtheancestors.com. As simple as that, avengingtheancestors.com, or calling us at 215-552-8751, and believe it or not, I'm going to take a breath now to allow you to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> well, actually, our time is up. I was just going to say activist, attorney, radio show host, university professor, and self-proclaimed angry black man. It was so good yes. to have you on the show because you always offer a very fresh perspective uh, on the issues that are important to today. And it is my hope that I can turn on CNN or MSNBC or one of those national networks and see you on their giving commentary. And I appreciate it. And I have to say this to you, and i got to be quite candid. Often when I'm interviewed by people, I mean, I enjoy being interviewed, but I really enjoy it when the person who's interviewing me not only knows the issues, but know a little bit about what I'm working on, and we can have a, an intelligent conversation. And I've got to tell you, this is one of the best interviews I've ever had, the wonderful opportunity to be a part of, and I hope it's not the last. I want to come back because I like the way you do what you do as a true professional. Oh, you know, that's funny because you said that before. I don't know if you remember. I moderated a discussion that yes. we had at the Mark yes. and Betty Shabbat Center, yep. and you said the same thing then. And now that you said it a second time, I have to believe that you're not lying. And I've never said it to anybody else. I mean, that's the thing. I said it to you twice and never to anybody else. So that says a lot. It comes from you. It absolutely does. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Next time you need me, just give me a call. Absolutely. Thank you again. Have a good evening. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Michael Court, activist, attorney, radio show host, university professor, angry black man, talking about the issues very important to all of us and our society, no matter what color you are. Here at the Gist of Freedom, we try to give you the first perspective, everyone's perspective, to make sure that you are well-informed and educated on the issues that are important to you. As always, please tune in to us at gistoffreedom.com and be aware of the podcast that we put up for your betterment entertainment, but most importantly, your education. This sponsored show is by Audible.com, a leading provider and audio entertainment, and you can listen to them the same way you're listening to this show for your convenience right now. You can get a 30-day free trial when you go and log on to www.audiobooksblackhistory.com, www.audiobooksblackhistoryaudiobooks.com. That's www.blackhistoryaudiobooks.com. Thank you so much, and until the next time, keep the faith. <laughs>